You're listening to the 17th and penultimate episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast season is about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to this episode like one watches a video of a car accident. Episode 17, Except When We Are. From the first time I arranged as a child to meet a girl in my elementary school class outside at recess, only to wait and wait in vain, that endlessly open, horribly empty still feeling inside me, through to older teenagehood, writing letters to girls and peering down the long laneway to our family mailbox all month to see if the little flag on it was up, indicating mail had been delivered, to sending an email once the email exchange seemed to have stopped at her end and vainly waiting all week for something to show up in my digital mailbox to leaving a message on someone's answering machine and waiting for days for them to phone back, to messaging or texting someone who'd not replied to the previous one and waiting all day in vain, I have a lifelong familiarity with being ghosted. We didn't use that word for it, of course, back then. And some girls did something very, very special. They dumped, broke up with, or otherwise indicated they'd be ghosting you, and true to their word, did. But then, months or even a year or two later, they'd suddenly reach out and want to talk, just like you'd been talking all along. Often they missed a listening ear or a solid, warm, tear-absorbent shoulder. So just when you'd almost forgotten why you cared about her at all, you'd suddenly remember all of it. The good feelings would come flooding back in, and you'd realize you'd fallen off the wagon again, and you were hooked on her again. And Elliot walked out again. Yes. And you still care about me. Yes. I don't think we should talk. You don't think we should talk tonight? I don't think we should talk at all. For how long? As long as it takes. This song was about missing someone in particular incredibly much, and the two of you going for months without communicating, but continually finding ourselves talking on the phone and texting from time to time whenever we felt life events needed to be shared. It's hard to get over someone you've been picturing your whole future with. You've needed to practice imagining a future without that blank face, that blank space, filled in, after all. That role no longer cast, if indeed it was ever going to be. But then the telephone would ring or your phone would vibrate or whatever, and suddenly the person who had been in your past is the person who is in your present again, in the now, for now. And you fill up with joy. Things like this can be a form of self-torture. Makes you feel like you imagine a heroin addict might feel, telling yourself you're doing so well that you've barely thought of her for days, and how over her you... And then you get a text or your phone actually rings and you're talking again for a while, often mostly about how you really shouldn't be talking, why you are talking, how nice it really is to be talking, what you want to say while you are talking, and so on. It feels like such a relief until it stops again, and then you're jonesing for more again. Megan talks about fighting that urge to reach out to someone you should have learned by now cannot be relied upon to accept and appreciate you. It's tough because you know 
and you get that gut feeling of like this is the right thing to do we shouldn't talk it's not healthy we're stressing each other out we just need to sort of cut ties work things out have that space whatever um but there's that gravitational pull that keeps pulling you back around and every few days one of you will reach out to the other one and suck you both right back into it um and it's incredibly tough and i'm still going through that now and there's never been more ways to connect to people yeah exactly like just in our situation i've ended up downloading like four different apps um just so that we didn't use whatsapp because that was kind of forbidden at that point so yeah i never knew there were so many messaging ways and in his case um see until relatively recently brethren people weren't allowed computers or anything with a screen and what has happened in 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 harry's generation is they found out how to control it they found out how to give everybody devices but control it and monitor it so you i'm sure you're aware that all of harry's electronic stuff in theory could be monitored or was open to the church to look at if they wanted yeah so his phone is actually a company phone um Mm -hmm. that we worked for um and also like before his meetings with his priests he would delete everything all of our conversations uninstall all of the apps and then as soon as it was over he'd reinstall them again so he'd basically wipe his phone of my existence just in case they wanted to check it to the best of my knowledge they can monitor anything they want that's happening in real time yeah i know and um, that's what um someone else i was speaking to today about this said because his last email to me was please 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 don't contact me and and she sort of said like actually it might be because they are watching him or yeah. they have software to see what he's doing so it's more of a plea to me to like not get him in any further trouble i didn't think of that before today now obviously there's so many young people to police that they can't police everybody but he's on their radar. And I've always been told that they don't have re- regular phones. They don't have regular laptops. They have brethren ones. Yeah. So it kind of puts me in a tricky position because if I do ever want to reach out, I don't know if I can now, you know, to get that closure. And you told me that um, he even connected to you on a Fitbit. <laughs> yeah. So basically I stopped wearing my Fitbit for a few days. Um, and it was showing that I was only doing 11 steps a day. And he thought that I was so depressed that we weren't talking, that I was ill. So he messaged me on the Fitbit app to say, like, are you okay? Because you're not walking. <laughs> and I had to say like, well, I'm, I'm just not wearing it at the moment. That is straight up the, the modern world being funny. That's nothing to do with the brethren. That's the modern world is a funny place when you can be pining after your loved one and you're trying to track how many steps she's taking. Yeah, it was. I was like really happy to talk to him anyway, because it had been a little while, but it made me laugh so much. And I was like, you know, that was the one thing I kind of needed was that laugh. Emily is certainly more than familiar with this sorry state of affairs as well. It's almost like they're not convicted in their choice. They're phoning to talk for hours about the fact that you can't have a relationship and how sad that is, but they keep phoning to further talk about it. That says to me that it's almost like they don't want that commitment of a relationship, but they want to have mm-hmm. that continued communication with you. So it turns into a situationship. So what what makes something God. a situationship? I look at a situationship as being where either both parties are not in the right place 
to com- fully commit into a relationship, but they both love one another and both want them there to be a future and hope for a future, but they can't put that full committal in. And some situationships will have intimacy and some situationships won't. And mm-hmm. I also put in there as a situationship is where one party wants more than just a friendship and the other mm-hmm. party only wants a friendship, but they both have feelings for one another, but one party can't fully commit at that stage or potentially, depending on how long that goes for, for a lot longer than that. It's always kind of a big painful mess, it seems. Yeah. Someone's going to get hurt at the end of the day. And I think it gets worse when you're older. Mm-hmm. I think when you're in your 20s, it's so you can be ruthless. If you have no children and you're like 22 and you get dumped, yeah, it hurts for about three or four weeks. And then you're like, ah, let's go find someone else, yep. you know? And there are so many people in their 20s that are single and they're living life and they're freer. But then as soon as you hit your 30s and then you or you've had a family uh, uh, or you've been married, then you reevaluate everything. And you're like, oh, now I can't be going around thinking I can just pick up someone else again because I've got too much estate now. I've got a house, I've got a daughter, child, whatever, dog. And uh, I've got to ensure it's the right person coming in now. So you end up becoming a lot more selective. And I think in your 30s, you would tolerate more. Harold argues forcefully for ending relationships that simply aren't working. Oh, meatloaf, you know, and now I'm praying for the end of time. Like you get into a relationship, a marriage, because you're in it for life, but you go to bed every night praying that that you'll die or I'll die. Uh, And I've seen this and I've seen this in a lot of quote unquote Christian marriages where, and people have come and talked to me uh, in my own marriage, my, my ex-wife and I went for marriage counseling and I begged her to go and unbeknownst to me, she went got somebody and talked to them for six weeks before I got to go to set in motion that I was going to be guilty. And it it shouldn't have never been about guilt. But she was raised Jewish, and Jewish guilt and Catholic guilt and apparently brethren guilt are all very similar. And I went for the first two weeks and never opened my mouth because I shouldn't have to defend myself from something that doesn't exist. Or And I let the counselor and my ex talk. And then finally the counselor says, do you have anything to say? And I said, well, am I actually allowed to speak? And at the end of it, two months later, the counselor looked at me and said, this woman should have never married anybody. Mm -hmm. And your mistake was thinking you could change her. And I said, my mistake was I didn't think she needed changing because who she was then and who she is now. So human beings make mistakes. They get into situations. My ex is no more evil than anybody else. She was living based on what she'd been through. 
People live and make decisions based on what they know, what's in their heart, the circumstances. When church makes the circumstances worse, God will never make your circumstances worse. Never. I will never fail you or forsake you. God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love covers a... If perfect love covers a multitude of sins, how come church people uncover them as quickly as possible? Mm -hmm. Susan talks about how hard it is to stop talking to someone you'd been in a relationship with. We've agreed we're not going to talk, right? Because it's too painful to talk and we're not pursuing a relationship. And then we keep phoning each other and we end up talking. Mm. Does that ring any bells where you, you're trying to be broken oh, up? Oh, yeah. I would say that guy, Jack, that I dated for three years, um, I wish I had only dated him for three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but we um, would break up and, you know, you're when you're so bonded, it's really, really, really hard. I think... Mm -hmm. In fact, it was really only that he met somebody else after, you know, this, the one time we broke up that he met someone else and jumped into that relationship. If he hadn't, I don't know if we would have continued to do it. And, and a lot of people will say, you know, if you go through a breakup, you should six, at least six weeks of not talking to each other. It's really good to do. And it's really hard. And depending on how intense the relationship, whether or how long it, it feels like it possible. With me, I mean, I have, I have trouble letting go of people that I've been so invested in, but man, them, yeah. mar them marrying a different guy, that does the trick for me. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Yeah. I think for a lot of times, like the ones that, you know, to women stay in relationships too long, you know, it was really that guy finding somebody else that, you know, ended it. Mm -hmm. And thank God, you know, those didn't, you know. It's the hardest thing I've had to go through and I'm still going through it. It's devastating because as much as you want them to want you or to change or want to be in a relationship, that's not enough. And, you know, in a way, love itself isn't enough. It, it takes work, a lot of work. And it's just not worth it if they're not willing to put that in. It's painful and it's devastating. And you have to be really strict with yourself and disciplined to not reach out or not talk to them and to go no contact so you can move on, so you can heal and get over it. There's always that little voice telling me, maybe we should go back, maybe we should talk to them. Things might have changed, but they won't. They wouldn't have changed. So you kind of have to just ignore that voice. But it is a vicious cycle. And it's very hard to get out of it. Joel feels that despite his relationship not working out, the experience of it helped him find new parts of himself. There were a lot of walls inside me that I couldn't reach through in the context of uh, intergender inter interactions that are... are lustful or romantic or something in that vein and I could tell this girl wanted to talk to me I could tell that she wanted to know me a little better or find out what I'm like joke with me and I had walls in the way she didn't tear my walls down or she didn't rip them down I clawed like crazy to get out of those walls make a hole through them and talk to her through it 
and reached my arm out and she touched my finger, you know? And I did it more and more and she provided a context for me to do this and reach through those barriers. And so, <laughs> I mean, the way things ended, if I were angry and upset, I could say, I gave her some gifts, you know? I gave her those gifts and she gets to keep them. She earned those gifts. I'm glad I gave her those. I gave her those at the time because I was thanking her for what she was doing. She changed my life and she still has. And I'm not putting her on a pedestal and saying, I'm going to love you forever. I'm just looking at the context of what she did, what she unlocked through the sheer nature. She was like one of those gentle camp counselors or like a teacher in school that wasn't mean to you and seemed to actually want to help you learn. There was a vibe from her that was so soft but not fake, you know? It, it was positive indifference. I don't know, but... She allowed me to reach through my barriers and I made it all the way through them. It was like being deprogrammed from decades of conditioning. For me to get someone who's special to me a gift and bring it to her and say, I got you this and have a natural interaction that's not clumsy was impossible. So many uh, walls in my head, conditioning, brainwashing, things that I couldn't get through. I definitely relate to this. When I'm single, I don't only miss a specific person. I also miss having someone around to share my day's events with, anything I've been working on, someone to try to make laugh or feel better or whatever. When I've been in a relationship with a woman, I've been able to be that guy. And when relationships end, I'm not him anymore. At least, I'm not getting to be him in any way I can feel. He said, why can't we just be friends? Well, I don't understand why we can't just be friends. I said, because I'm in love with you. And um, he said, well, um, I'm not going to I'm not gonna cut you off because you're asking me to do something that I don't want to do. You're forcing me to do something. And quite frankly, I don't want to be forced to do something that I don't want to do. I was like, okay, right, no problem. So according to him, you're in love with him, but he's not in love with you? Is that his story? No, he told, he said to me, he said, my feelings haven't changed for you. And I said, well, do you know what? I said, in time, when there's no contact, what happens is you, um, like out of sight, out of mind, and you end up forgetting about that person. Like if they're not committing, mm -hmm. you just, it fizzles. And he said, no, I disagree. And I'm like, okay. Like how I treat a woman is based on how he treats me. So if you don't believe you deserve to be treated well, stay single. <laughs> you know, he had the green-eyed monster when I had the guy, the Eurostar, who bought me a bar of chocolate. That was really sweet. There was no motive of this guy. He saw me upset. Didn't ask me my name or my number. Wink, didn't wink at me, nothing. Green-eyed monster came out and Steve. He said, oh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? You know, the French are sleazy. For me, the experience discussed in the song and this episode is of missing someone who felt our relationship hadn't been quite her favorite flavor after all, but was kind of reaching out from time to time to have another taste of that connection, possibly reassuring herself that if her bet that she could do better didn't pan out, I might still be around as a just-in-case case. For others, the situation is quite different. 
For some, it's about a woman needing to divorce a man who has substance abuse problems and may be controlling and abusive. That makes things very, very different. In the cases of Ruth and Joanna, divorcing their husbands also meant being excommunicated from their assembly and barred forever after from brethren social activities, essentially cutting them off almost entirely from the entire culture that they grew up with and turning them loose into a world that had been sold to them as the most dark, dangerous, sketchy thing ever. In terms of ended relationships and having to kind of revisit everything, um, thankfully in my case, things were a bit extreme. So he quite literally couldn't talk to me um, without risking getting arrested. Um, And then at the end, communication was through lawyers um, but even so, on the phone, um, I was blessed with the fact that COVID restrictions were still in effect, so everything was able to be done over audio phone call. And even so, hearing his voice, like, I had de- had definite PTSD attack, like, I was shaking, my hands were, like, ice cold. Um, so it was pretty traumatic. Um definitely never missed him and never regretted the decision I made, not once, Um, even with the repercussions it's had in terms of the people I grew up with, you know, not really approving of my decision, but, you know, it, it wasn't their life and they didn't have to live, live through those fears. So that's my experience. It's pretty extreme. Um, and a lot of times I see people talking about contact with their exes or in moments of weakness wanting to go back. And I, I just can't relate at all to that anymore, <laughs> which I guess, you know, it's a it's its own blessing having things be extreme. And I'm thankful that I'm still alive, quite frankly. So there's a word for people like me who are or were partners of addicts, although we are not addicts ourselves. We are codependents. About once a week, my ex has a meltdown on his social media page. And I see it and I think, this isn't about me. He's been separated from me for seven years this May and he still has the same damn problems he always had. I gave my all to trying to help and wasn't able to do a single thing. And so I need to detach. And I do emotionally detach. I used to be the toxic dumping ground for his issues, and I'm not anymore because I refuse. But every single time, I am so scared. But after seven years, it's finally beginning to come home to him that I'm by way of being a high-value woman. He's realizing a bit what he lost in me, He seems so utterly cavalier and without regrets when he left and now that he is getting sober, he is realizing what he lost in me. I'm struggling a bit with the old codependent voices that say, maybe this time if you go back, you could help. You want a third child, don't you? And I do. I desperately want a third child, but not that way. That way would be living a lie. After each kid was conceived, I thought, This kid will be the turning point. Two children and seven years later, he's saying, 
sobriety. Nothing has changed, I said. No. Not no, but maybe later. Not no, but I might change my mind. I said no, but with gratitude. By closing that door behind me, I hope and pray that I may be ready when the right man comes along to say yes. I try to read something vaguely about God or the Bible on Sundays. It's not like I'm going to church. Like a reverse vampire, if I cross the threshold of a church, the leadership tends to recoil in horror, hissing at me. And I'm more than done reading the dusty old books and equally dusty Facebook memes and chats, sometimes quite erroneously called discussions by brethren men and similar, affirming traditional brethren and fundamentalist evangelical interpretations of, or more usually, applications of, the Bible. I had plenty enough of that growing up. Blinders. Limits. The shutting down of inquiry. There is no growth, no life, no lessons for me there anymore, I don't think. Nothing that's worth the time. So what do I need now? Other stuff. So I look, and I find there are pretty much just the two kinds of books about the Bible. And I'm tired of the one kind I just mentioned. So I try, once again, the other stuff. As a side note, theologically, I'm convinced that our identity comes from outside of ourselves, not from inside of ourselves. Ah. That it's actually God saying, this is who you are. And sort of confirming. And you agreeing with it. And so the fact that other people, which works against us, people can lie to us and tell us that we're something and we can believe it, but it comes from outside of ourselves. Mm. So surrounding ourselves by communities of people who affirm a positive identity is the way to, to change. I really liked Don Miller for quite a while years ago because of his wry, unassuming frankness. And then he entirely stopped having new ideas, at least non-money-related ones, as thinkers and artists tend to do once they've started a family and a business. I actually, 11 years ago, lost all of my money, my entire life savings, and a bad investment. It was devastating. 11 years later, I had a $17 million company with more than 50% profit, and life was very, very different. And one of the main reasons it was different, I 100% took 100% ownership of my career and my life and my business. Everything that negative happened, I took ownership of. Everything positive happened, I took ownership of. And so as you talk about the economy struggling, that's the economy. Your economy is different. I tried Tony Campolo with Brian McLaren and liked it okay, but didn't have my socks blown off or anything. Today, I tried again, and it all came rushing back to me. Why, when I try to read books by the other sort of Christians to the ones I was raised with, it feels like the books are being written to a very specific sort of reader who is very much not me, just like their worship is for a whole different kind of person than I am. First, I don't like church speak or corporate ease, and these books are often written by people who are purposely trying to connect with readers by talking that way. People with years of experience running churches as corporations, trying to sound cool or good or clever or approachable or whatever. Well, I didn't grow up with it, so it sounds alienating and dumb, I guess. Pretty trash. Naturally, if I had my way, we'd have a moratorium next year for the entire year on Christians talking about diving into anything, being on journeys and things happening in seasons in their lives, which they don't call their lives, but rather their stories. No need when saying they are simply going to do a thing to say they are launching it. I feel like launching them an email about that. That email should drop shortly after I send it. 
They would also stop talking about sharing whatever it is they simply have to say, as if they were holding out a delicious double-decker chocolate cake and magnanimously offering to share with you a piece of that chocolatey goodness instead of hoarding the whole thing. And they would need to stop talking about struggling all the time with stuff I read in the Bible when I was eight, as if they were Hercules or Odysseus or someone like that, rather than being just people who are reading the same book I did and trying to love all the facets of God shown in the Bible. Oh, and they'd also have to stop telling each other how brave they are to, you know, say things on the internet. Frequently things about a book in which people died for doing things. Because me being very much myself... All that stuff makes me sneer and frequently vomit. Certainly throw the book across the room with some force. Many of them have their heads so far up their own churches that they can't utter a sentence without filling it with talk of being humbled and blessed with callings, missions, committees, pastorships, leadership roles, and other stuff that's less interesting to the rest of us than the minutes of a town council meeting from a town we've never heard of with a bunch of nobodies fighting each other over who plays what roles in endless meetings that mostly involve people meeting together to talk about who is playing what roles in what. Developing a vision, a framework, a mission statement that lovingly encapsulates their visions and frameworks and roles and shit. Above all things, I am not American, and the two kinds of modern Christians seem to be Republican Christians and Democrat Christians. American ones. You could maybe call them conservative Christians and liberal or progressive Christians, emergent or not coming out and neither should anyone else Christians. I am not either of those. I'm Canadian, so we grew up speaking American even more fluently than we grew up speaking French. But I don't feel like an American, because I'm not one, and I don't want to be. They're okay in small doses. They make cool music and cars and stuff. I live a couple of hours from the border, have cousins south of the border, and I'm qualified to teach high school in New York State. Clearly, I really don't want to ever, ever do that. Canada is plenty bad enough. But modern Christianity seems to be 100% American, or as an American might put it, 110% American. Let me start out by saying how excited I am to not be an excitable American. If pushed to it, I'd choose being British over being American, despite how much tea one apparently has to drink over there, just to keep from losing consciousness entirely. So I'm not American, and I'm not right-wing, nor am I left-wing. Like a great many people, actually, I find myself in the middle of a bunch of that, with a foot on one side of the line about a bunch of it, feeling very conflicted when forced to pick a side and vote, something I was forbidden by my Christian community to do growing up anyway. Also, I'm not female. And these Christian books are largely written by men trying to sell books about feelings to women. Speak unto us smooth things, and so on. Make us feel better about how we feel. Tell us to keep doing what we're already doing, and to feel better about doing it. Try this. Go on the internet and find a picture a man has uploaded to social media of himself holding a book. Well, a book other than perhaps the Bible, which is, of course, a power move to pose with. I know that almost all books that are read nowadays are read by women anyway, and that is more true than ever with these Christian books. Books about how to eat, pray, love, written to people who clearly seem to have the first one pretty much figured out at least. I'm a man and an annoyingly gender-typical one in several key ways. When it comes to reading, I either read for conversations and social interplay, that's what I get from fiction, or for information, that's what I get from nonfiction. In fiction, the narrative carries me from start to finish with that familiar human structure, the structure of story, propelling me to the end. It's about cheering for someone who is struggling towards a clear goal. 
In information things, there is none of that, so I want to cut to the chase. I skip around. I even bail on the book entirely once I've got the gist of it. Academic articles and essays are, compared to novels, extremely short and to the point. Songs, lyrics, and poems, even more so. But then there's this whole other thing. Self-help books. What almost all Christian books are, including the study, quote-unquote, ones. An age ago, Don Miller made great fun of publishers' attempts to try to get him to take his creative, meta, wry, Gen Xer ramblings that, if you pay attention, first and foremost follow story structure and rebuild them around a five-point method, with each point fitting on its own PowerPoint slide and all of them alliterating or forming an acronym. The trick, of course, for those books is to then build a transparently contrived story structure, purely a cosmetic one, around these boring PowerPoint slides. You know the structure, the one used to sell Cheetos, iced tea, and shampoo. At first, I was unhappy. Nothing seemed to work. But thank goodness I found this thing, because now I am happy all the day and my life is just going so well. Isn't it time you got this thing? It's worth it. You'll wonder how you got by without this thing. You deserve it. Now that's not someone giving you information, nor someone telling you a story. It's someone who wants your money, working a mark. I'm sure one doesn't have to be a man to be annoyed by this thing I just described in Christian and other self-help books, to bridle at all of the emotion massaging and remote rapport establishing that seems to be taking up endless pages before any single thing that makes you think or feel anything besides impatience appears distantly over the horizon, let alone gives you ideas about things to do. Or maybe that's just me. When I read books on Christian subjects, I don't want to feel heard or seen. I want tools, stuff that I can use, things to try, things I haven't thought of yet. Like right now, having finished Marty's book, I'm trying a Brian McLaren book about doubt. Like Brene Brown writing about shame, doubt is one of those topics that people, statistically, most often women, are delighted to find has been written about. Because you're not supposed to fart in public and you're also not supposed to admit that you're suffering under a weight of shame you think the group might be not only fostering but benefiting from, maybe even using, to punish your behavior when it doesn't approve of it. And in Christian circles, you aren't supposed to admit doubt either. Ever. Try it. People will leap forward to try to fix it, to fix you, or maybe have you be somewhere else entirely. And here's where another problem comes. McLaren, a man who is a lucky 13 years older than I am, uses a folksy image to talk about being forced to deconstruct or re-examine one's Christian faith. He invites the reader to imagine something. You have, he explains for pages, a map. You've always used it to navigate around. It was given to you by your parents. It was drawn up by previous generations, and they knew what they were doing, or so everyone claims. But now you are lost. And you realize that this is because with the passage of time and the patterns of human life, you are not anywhere that's depicted on that map anymore. It doesn't cover where and who you are and what things are like this decade. You're off the edge of this map, so to speak. The river you're standing in doesn't appear on it anywhere. That bridge that's so clearly drawn on the map, it doesn't actually exist anymore and hasn't for a generation. Now that's a perfectly useful image to give to people who are just beginning to try to figure out doubt as a topic or human growth, even for Christians or former Christians. And I'm always looking for someone to make me see things a new way or think something new. And there's the problem. 
I'm not young, and I've read a bunch of things. When it comes to doubt and deconstructing my Christianity, this isn't my first rodeo, and I'm no spring chicken. I'm not as old as Brian McLaren, but that map thing? My response to it wasn't, oh, what a helpful, fresh, and useful way to view this whole situation. I shall definitely have to start thinking along those lines. My response was, I wrote a song about that over 30 years ago, about precisely that, with exactly that image and those conclusions. Next. I don't know how to convey or communicate this experience of needing more, of needing something new, without sounding like a dick. But it's like this. Imagine you're a not-yet-diagnosed diabetic and you are increasingly experiencing that cluster of odd symptoms, including dizziness, exhaustion, mental confusion, blurred vision, sores that won't heal, numbness in your hands, and thirst. So you make an appointment with your doctor, rightly expecting her to eventually diagnose you with type 2 diabetes. You've Googled Mayo Clinic, so you're an expert now. And you casually mention all of this to a coworker, mentioning that you'll know more after the appointment, which is next week. And the coworker says, You know what I've been doing lately when I'm feeling thirsty? I try to drink some water, you know? Just a few times a day. Try it. You might find it helps you and your thirst issue. Takes a saint not to simply snarl, No shit, Sherlock, and move on. But with diabetes, there are doctors. I've spoken with doctors of divinity, and in the words of Pastor Shania Twain, they don't impress me much. I've proofread their doctoral theses for them and tried to tell them they were overdoing the jargon, only to have them explain that the purpose of presenting the thesis was, in part, to show that they could toss around the jargon. They don't have a lot of conclusions, anyway. They can tell you about all the isms that have ever been ismed and by whom, of course, and some of them, not content to simply pursue theories as to exactly how the Bible was composed, edited, and redacted, have actually read the whole thing. But yeah, I think I'm a bit beyond a need to feel seen, feel heard, and feel whatever. I think I've collected enough theories, too. I think I'm firmly onto the ground of needing stuff to try, stuff that might work, not just to feel or think differently, to function differently. You know a surefire way to feel empowered? Wield some power. To feel successful? Succeed at something today. That's what seems to work. But feelings? Those are there too. And in my quest to function, to create, to communicate, to do and make and fix and help and heal and inform, they're always there. And I really, really do think women are, in many ways, much better at feelings. When we're hurting, I think we all want our mothers, whether they were good at feelings or not. And many of us had mothers who didn't really know what to do about them, despite being women, perhaps their own feelings having been trampled underfoot repeatedly from a young age. Marty Solomon, on an episode of his Baymob podcast, read two poem-prayer-blessings kind of things by a pretty young, cheerful-looking woman named Sarah Bessie, author of a book called Jesus Feminist, and no doubt part of an online community of women sharing recipes, workouts, and daily affirmations and fresh new ideas for how to love, pray, and eat. You know, I had been wanting to write about prayer for a number of years, actually, um, because prayer is something that um, is really integral to my life. And yet I can see that it's something that oftentimes is one of the first things that people feel like they lose a path on when they begin to kind of rethink how they think about prayer, about God or about scripture, church, you know, all the different things that kind of go into, um, you know, a, a spiritual journey. But I just never really could figure out a way to do that without it coming out incredibly 
I don't know, uh, maybe formulaic or prescriptive. Now, Marty is a dude. And so unsurprisingly, after listening to hundreds of his podcast episodes, I find that he's helped me view things differently, but has made no attempt really to touch my feelings, which was the deal, I think, why I was listening. But for a conclusion of a season of his podcast, he armed himself with some stuff designed by a woman to massage a reader or listener's feelings, created by a woman who, despite using language certainly not aimed at anyone like me, or anyone male in particular, talking about how we mother and raise our babies and the casseroles we bring to church events and so on, rather than what we are going to do about our jobs, our plumbing, our money, our balls, our car, or our deck, and yet it touched me, and that's not easy to do. My heart is like a big rock by now, given everything. You can smash yourself to pieces on it like it's Jesus or something. A scandalon, indeed. Here's what Sarah Bessie's writing hid. I lived a childhood where no meal passed without a prayer being said over it so we wouldn't choke on it. People were always praying, and ostensibly they were talking to God and letting us listen in while they did that. They were more important than we were, the most important person in the room being chosen to pray, so they knew what to say and ask him for us, and so on. But very often, as a child, I'd be listening to someone pray, and I'd think, hey, you are not talking to God at all. You're talking to me, to us. You're pretending to talk to God, but even from your inconsistent grammar itself, you're telling us what to think and feel and want. Oh, you're kind of asking God that we would all think and feel and want what you think we should, but you seem to be putting yourself in the God role in this little performance of yours. I thought when I was ten. I was fun at birthday parties and on the playground, I can tell you. But this prayer thing didn't make me not believe that there was a God who could theoretically be prayed to. Didn't make me think that Brother Jim or Brother Bob were trying to fool us into praying to a being who wasn't real. I just thought they were lying, performing, pretending, preening, using a God puppet and doing a big, ominous voice, giving us a sermon they'd packaged up like a prayer. But Sarah Bessie, she was kind of doing that in a good way. In a book writing stuff that sounded kind of like, I pray that you would have your anger lit up and your surprise, that you would have your toes stepped on and step on the toes of others, both of you trying to find and tell the truth and learning when you get it wrong, and learning how to ask for forgiveness without shame. I pray that you would realize that you are made, chosen, valuable, because you are. There isn't the church, which is us, and then there's you, because you are us. We are the church, and without you, we wouldn't be us. I pray that you stop waiting for anyone to tell you that you matter, because you just do. Stuff like that. Stuff I'm not used to hearing. That's my approximation of what Sarah Bessie was up to in that prayer. Pretending to pray, but obviously not praying. She's writing a book, and she's never met me. Doesn't know of my existence to wish me well, ill, or indifferent. And yet... So it wasn't a prayer exactly, but it was kind of a blessing, and praying can be like that. And this made me realize that for most of my life, especially adult life, I wasn't blessed, not by people anyway. I wasn't aware of anyone praying for me. In fact, I was keenly aware that people were praying against me, more than willing to believe that serious, grave folks prayed about kicking me out, praying that God himself ensure I not sneakily somehow stay in or come back in, and then praying that I not cause any more problems and just go away if I wasn't going to change into a completely different person than the one that God made me into. So the very idea 
that someone might be blessing or cheering for me, praying for my success, for me to get what I'm trying to get, blindsided me. Completely not used to that. I am certainly not, on a weekly basis, aware of anyone doing that. When the Christian community pushes you out, drives you away, turns its back on you, and hopes you don't come back, it's a pretty fair guess that they aren't praying for you to succeed. It was amusing to hear Reed Dent, a guest on Marty's podcast, jokingly accuse Marty of being uncomfortable with feelings in general, and hear throughout the episode the two men who obviously have a very brotherly friendship continually break each other's balls and generally take the piss out of each other, continually showing affection by straight-faced deadpan insults. No one sensible could possibly misunderstand the love being shown by men who feel most comfortable showing it in that way. And the guest the following week told Marty and Brent that he blessed them for doing their podcast. That's Christianese for him seeking God's support for Marty and Brent's work because he thinks it's a good work. I'm not there. At this point, having conceived, scripted, enacted, edited, and published 60 episodes of this thing, I've been told I'm hurting Christians. People have been scolded and warned against being on it. People have been asked that I not be allowed to link to it on Christian forums. And at best, people have kind of shyly told me that they have listened to some of it. So I've thanked them for listening. Thank you for listening, by the way. I've let them be on it if they liked it, too. But having Christian people telling you you're doing a good thing you should keep on doing, so they're asking God to help you out with that? I don't know what that would even feel like. Pretty sure that isn't part of the job description for being me. This week's Brian McLaren reading about doubt addressed why people are scared to pursue doubts, why they hide them, and what might happen to their lives if they explore them. Also, the idea that when religious people exit their religious lifestyle through some kind of scandal, maybe it's not that they believed strongly all the while, but had a moment of weakness that ruined it, but that maybe the scandal was an escape hatch they'd been waiting for for some time. Brian is clear that in the faith industry, you are literally paid to believe. So doubting is not doing your job. Brian mentioned the simple fact that if you are lying to yourself about what you want to feel you believe, but deep down just don't, then you might have trouble knowing who you are if those pretend beliefs slip away entirely like an unfaithful spouse. Who will you be now? My work on this episode was delayed slightly for the best of reasons. My nephew coming over to hang out in the nature and cut my lawn and my friend Chris wondering if I'd record him attempting a slowed down version of an extremely challenging guitar part on a Fleetwood Mac song. <laughs> so ask any guitarist that ever tried this song and it'll tell you, yeah, almost broke my fingers. It's time we talked about this Never Going Back Again by Fleetwood Mac, written and performed by Lindsey Buckingham. Requires a lot of stamina coordination so here's why it's pretty dang hard to get it down and you know what i hate most it's just a great song it's featured on probably one of the best selling records of all time now i haven't recorded anyone doing music other than mine since before covid so this was great chris was worried at first there you go there i go okay one two three four one two she br- <laughs> it was a strong start. <laughs> but he soon got going. I might point out 
that all this is one guy playing one guitar with no additional tracks added. This is all coming out of one guy's fingers in real time. have never learned to do that. I love to watch documentaries about music and musicians, even ones whose genre or style of music I'm not attempting to do myself. I seem to remember having watched a documentary about the history of country music and wanting to write one of those heartbreaking, simple, sad, slow, soft songs that doesn't need a whole band to land. Like I Fall to Pieces by Patsy Cline, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry by Hank Williams. Did you ever see Robin weep when leaves began to die? Like me, lost the will to live. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Stuff like that. This song didn't have drums recorded, and though I love the idea of songs not needing drums and stuff and love writing and performing simple, sad, slow songs, I often doubt my simple song's ability to stand up and not lose listeners' interest without adding additional instruments. I sent this one to Evan for some quiet drums, saying maybe it would benefit from some quiet, jazzy ride or hi-hat work, and he refused to do any, saying, I'm not going to ruin this beautiful song with drums. Well, that's nice of him. I had to think about if and how much to sneak in some quiet supporting stuff, though. Because the thing about this recording is I did a rough track of it that had so much of the raw emotion in it of the moment with me fully inside that feeling being expressed in it at that time that I don't really want to lose all of that. But it's not sung perfectly, as I was in the middle of writing it when I recorded it. So I listened to it again prior to finishing up this episode, and it has emotion in it that might be hard to recapture, but I kind of want to polish it up a bit, subtly. So I had to go with that. What I normally do is build layers of sound on top of the original sound, mixing it in louder, often replacing it in places or entirely by the end. What I proposed to do here was the opposite, to leave the rough track right out in front, but undergird it with solid stuff quietly. One hard part of that was that this original recording was recorded before I sustained the MS-related nerve damage to my hand, which nerve damage is particularly on display when I'm quietly fretting all six strings of the guitar on a track which pretty much only has those six strings repeatedly, slowly ringing out. So instead of a chime, you run the risk of getting a plunk I double the vocals to try to prop them up a bit and fix a couple of weak spots. That you love me, but when I tell me that you love me, but when I as the start of it sounds like I'm about to start singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, even though I'm playing a G chord walking down to an E minor rather than a C chord walking down to an A minor, I added a lead bit to make it sound slightly less like old Leonard. 
I avoided the urge to add in a bunch of vocal harmonies or percussions or whatever, just to remind myself that I don't always have to do that. Just as my heart out Every time I go to let you know What's up with me When my night is long When stuff at my job's going south Just as my heart out Every time Cause I miss your voice I miss your laugh Miss how you sound When you tell me Tell me Tell me That you love me But we're not talking Except when we are No, we're not talking Except when we are Does it take a heart out? Every time When you go to say What's up with you When your weekend's long When your whole work day goes sideways Go sideways Does it tear your heart out Every time Like mine when my phone rings, I leap to my feet, hoping that it's you, needing it to be, hoping you and me can open up and nothing, nowhere, and no one is ever gonna come between us. Say. Except when we are 